For most of us, our starting point of faith happened when we were children. And then we grew up and we discovered that our childhood faith wasn't strong enough to support our adult challenges. So we're talking about what does it look like to have a new starting point on the Tower Hill Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast of Tower Hill Church, a church for all generations. This is Pastor Jason. Well, we are just one week removed from Easter Sunday and we started a new sermon series here at Tower Hill that we hope will really help you grow deeper in your faith in Jesus Christ. And it's really a series that's meant to reach people no matter where they are in their faith. And that's why I love it so much. It's called Starting Point. Starting Point originally was a class that was done by North Point Community Church, Andy Stanley's church. And he also turned it into a sermon series, and that's what we're doing as well. We're taking uh, Andy's outlines, Andy's ideas about starting point, because we think they're so good, and we are doing a sermon series based on that material. And uh, if you've ever done a starting point class, you'll recognize it right away, and if if not, hopefully this will be a great introduction, and we'd still love for you to join a starting point class the next time that we offer them here, because we think it's so important to be able to have a discussion, to bring all of your questions to really figure out what is who is this Jesus and what does he mean for my life. Anyway, uh, boy, Easter was so great. We had such a great, um, amazing turnout here. It was the uh, one of the biggest Sundays, Easter Sundays we've ever had, or at least uh, in recent memory. And um, but it's also important that you know faith isn't just about what happens between christmas and easter right it's about what happens the other 50 sundays and all the days in between uh, faith is meant to be lived and i pray that wherever you are however you're listening whatever you're doing that you are inspired to live out your faith we don't know how long we have on this earth and i got to tell you i don't want to waste another minute living in fear instead of faith and so i hope that you are blessed by uh by the message today and you know, as we are looking ahead in the life at Tower Hill, if you're listening in real time, I do want to remind you that we have a Dinners for Eight coming up, which is a really fun fellowship opportunity uh, where you literally just go out to dinner. It's no pressure. <laughs> and you go out in groups of eight and get to know some of the folks from the church. So just uh, if you want to know about that or any of the other events coming up, just simply go to our webpage, towerhillchurch.org forward slash events, and you will find all of that really great stuff. Well, uh, I don't want to take too much longer. I want to get right to it. Here's starting point, uh, part one, something happened. All right, have a great week, everyone. Yes, we are starting our new series, Starting Point, which comes to us from our friends at North Point Community Church. They do a starting point class that we also do here. We love that class. And this is the sermon series that basically takes that starting point class and turns it into a message series. And I love when we get stuff from North Point because they have such great production value. Like we didn't, we didn't have to create that really cool video. So, well, starting point, everything has a starting point. And that, that's kind of where this whole series kicks off. Everything, you, you and I had a starting point. Uh, some of you was, were started on purpose. Everything has a starting point. Our relationships, our marriage, our career, our school, everything has a starting point, and that is also true about faith. Now, for many of you, your starting point for faith came sometime during your childhood, where your, your parents are just kind of handing down what they believe to be true about God, and you take that and you incorporate that into your own framework 
of who God is, what he's about, and what it means for your life. Now, maybe as a child in this framework, you, you learn some things like God is good and God uh, rewards good boys and girls and punishes bad ones, right? Uh, God answers prayer. And you have this childhood framework of faith that then sets you up for a relationship with God. But interestingly, you know what happens? Uh, what the research says is that at whatever point, if you grew up in church, at whatever point you stop going to Sunday school or confirmation was really when your faith growth ended. When your understanding of God ended. For a lot of people, confirmation is graduation. Like, I made my confirmation. Peace. Right? I mean, that's just kind of, so for a lot of people, then what happens is you live your adult life with a childhood faith, a childhood framework of God. And for many of us, that childhood framework isn't enough because then life happens as adults. I mean, listen, all it takes is for then you as children to, uh, you grow up, you go to Sunday school, and then you go off to college, and it takes one really excited professor to like dismantle everything you think you know about Jesus, the Bible, everything, and then you're stuck. And then you feel like you're stranded. And interestingly, you know, this is why we've changed our Sunday school model here at Tower Hill. The old school model is it's all about the information. If we get the information in the kid's head, then they're going to have a vibrant faith in Jesus Christ. The problem is, is information without relationship is useless. So we switch that. For us, it's all about the experience. It's about the relationship. We want kids, when they leave our Sunday school program, to feel like God loves them, no matter what. Because we think a relationship is much harder to break. Now, we give them information too, but it's not about the content as much as it's about the relationship. That's what we're trying to do. Because we want to set them up that when they go to college, the first professor that comes with some facts about, you know, historical, critical, biblical method, uh, you know, they're not freaking out and losing their faith. Karen Armstrong puts it this way in her book, The Case for God. So many of us have left, have been left stranded with an incoherent concept of God. Not surprisingly, when we attained intellectual maturity, many of us rejected the God we had inherited and denied that he existed. Maybe you felt like you at one time were in this category, or maybe you're in this category right now, that you're trying to figure out what was part of my childhood baggage. Because maybe in your adult life, you start to say, okay, God is good. Well, I don't know. There's so much evil in the world. Or uh, God rewards good and punishes evil. Wait a second. That's not what I'm seeing in, in the world. I'm not seeing that happen. When I'm good, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm getting blessed. And I think I should, by the way. God answers prayer. Yeah, right. I prayed for lots of stuff and God didn't seem to show up. So our childhood framework doesn't serve us. A couple couple weeks ago, I used this illustration. I think it fits. It's like walking out onto thin ice. Our childhood faith, we start to walk out onto the ice in our adult life and we find that our faith is simply too thin to support our weight. And our faith begins to break down. We need a new starting point. Or maybe a restarting point. To make sure that we have an adult starting point of faith. That is strong enough to withstand whatever life get hit. That the ice is so thick you could drive the semi-truck across it. 
And so that's what this series is about. Now listen, if you feel like you've been walking with Jesus a long time, that you're spiritually mature, don't check out on me. Don't check out on me because I do believe this series is also going to help to drill even deeper with what we know about God and that our faith can be grown uh, even through this series talking about, well, how do, how do I know my relationship with Jesus Christ? So hopefully there's something for everybody as we continue. And we're going to start in the book of Acts. We're going to start with Paul's journey to Athens and we're going to jump right into Uh, chapter 17 of Acts, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. How many of you have been to Athens? You haven't been to Athens? You guys are so cool. I have not, so I'm completely dependent on research, which is a drag, man. There's nothing like going and actually seeing it. But You probably, even if you haven't been there, you know a few things about ancient Greece, ancient Athens. What are some things you might think of? You might think the Parthenon. That might be a big one. The Acropolis. All these buildings. The Parthenon, of course, housed the golden statue of Athena and all of these buildings for dedicated for religious uh, purposes. All these different gods they tried to honor. It had to be overwhelming going into ancient Greece, just simply the sheer number of gods, because they didn't want to leave any out. There's like, we worship everybody, just in case we forget one. And uh, we're going to talk more about that in a second. But I, I have to feel like it was so overwhelming that you had so many choices that it seemed like walking into the Disney store. Like, I don't know, now Disney owns Star Wars, Marvel. I walk in there and I'm seeing like the Hulk and I'm seeing Luke Skywalker and Ray, and then I'm seeing all the Disney stuff. It's a little overwhelming. That was a joke. I'm really fine. But, <laughs> but <laughs> the point is, it, there were so many different things to choose from. It seemed like they worshipped everything. The other thing that you might know about ancient Greece is that philosophy was a big deal. There were all these different schools of philosophy. And uh, schools, just like it sounds like, they had uh, groups of students that would get together that, and they would talk wisdom and philosophy and they would spend a lot of time, a lot of part of their day trying to get more and more wisdom. So Paul looks around, he surveys the landscape, he's disturbed at the number of idols that are there. Let's continue, verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace Day by day with those who happened to be there. Actually, this was uh, something that philosophers did. This is what people did. They reasoned with people in the marketplace. Uh, kind of makes your trip to Whole Foods sound pretty good. You know? <laughs> don't, don't talk to me. Just, just let me go. I'm already embarrassed I'm spending this much on food. Sorry, was that my baggage coming out? You okay? <laughs> A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. (laughs) As if to say, "Uh uh-oh, maybe we missed some. Better find out which gods he's talking about. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. In other words, we don't have the Old Testament. Of course, they didn't call it that then. They call it the Scriptures. We don't have the Scriptures. We're not Jewish people. 
Can you start from the beginning and explain to us what these crazy ideas are all about? And so they invited him to the Areopagus. Uh, there's a picture of the Areopagus. It's that big rock formation, and that is where you, you were invited if the philosophers wanted to hear more. It was also a place where they had like appeals for criminal uh, cases, but this is a place where the philosophers hung out and got really deep and talked philosophy. And so uh, if you were interesting enough, they would want to speak with you more, and he, Paul got invited to speak at the Areopagus. He had this really amazing opportunity. And interestingly, it also shows that Paul knew a thing or two about how to get invited. He kind of got it. He knew what the practices were, the philosophers. And so he jumped in and was invited to speak. I think that's uh, really important because I think it says something about culture today. No matter what you think about culture, you might look at our American culture or the culture of this part of the country, you might have a lot of beef with it. There's a lot of things you might not like about it. Paul didn't go in there just knocking it all down, being like, you're all horrible, evil people. Uh, Culture is the devil. You know, like the water boy. And uh, everything's the devil, and so I'm checking out. No, he doesn't do that at all. He finds a window within culture to have an opportunity to speak the truth of the gospel. This is so important. This is why, um, you know, I believe the Amish, this is where I think they get it wrong. There are some places I think they get it right. But to completely shut yourself off from culture is to deny the opportunity to share the gospel through it. This is what I think we learned from Paul. Let's go to verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Isn't that awesome? They took the time to make an altar to an unknown God just in case. (laughs) Can't you relate with that? The just in case God like... God, I don't know if you're real, but just in case, I'm going to (laughs) pray. I don't know if you're around, but just in case. This was like the theme park of just in case. But watch what Paul does with with this opportunity to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. He took that idea. He said, this unknown God, let me tell you about the God you don't know. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Interestingly, go back one. Interestingly, uh, he's quoting their own philosophic schools, their own philosophy teachers, right back at them in the argument. So he knew about Greek philosophy enough to say, oh yeah, just like your very own people are saying, They actually didn't realize they are arguing for the God that you don't know. 
which I thought was really cool. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Of course, he's referring directly to all these statues and the statue of Athena, the most important part of Athens. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. By the man he has appointed, he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. It's not just because they were snarky. It's because their philosophical school did not believe in life after death. They didn't believe in resurrection. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. I feel like the starting point series is for people who at some point in their heart want to say, hmm, I want to hear you again on this subject. And for us who might know Jesus to say, hmm, wait a minute, how much of, is my understanding of Jesus based on my childhood framework, on the childhood ice that I'm walking on? And maybe there is something even deeper and stronger than I realized. Maybe for you, it's a restarting point. There are a couple of observations in this moment in Athens that I think are important. Is that the cultural starting point for the Athenians, I think, is the same as today. It wasn't the Bible. Here's why. They didn't have it. They, they weren't Jewish. They didn't have any scriptures. For them to say, well, as it says in the scriptures, would be a non-starter. I feel like that's where we are culturally today. Where people ask about Jesus and you start saying, well, the Bible says, they're like, nope, not listening to anything else. It's like, um, they don't care what the Bible says because they don't understand why it matters. And so the starting point for faith, for most of people in America, certainly most adults, is not the Bible says, it's Jesus says. Who is Jesus? What does he have to say about my life right now? What, why does it matter what he says about my life? I think it's the same starting point as it was for those people of Athens. How does Jesus change what I already think I know about my life, about the world around me, about everything? It's a fundamental question. Who is Jesus? Do you feel like the world is like a statue to an unknown God. People are striving and chasing and trying to figure out what, what does my life mean? What am I doing? And that meaning takes all different shapes and sizes. It's, uh, and I think in our culture, it's something like you find meaning through your job, right? What, what you do. And that's like the big, seems like the big question that you're asked from when you're a little kid. What do you want to be when you grow up? What are you going to college for? What's your major? What are you doing after school? Do you have a job? Is that the field that you're looking for? Oh, you have a job. Do you like it? Is it fulfilling? You're like, are you kidding me? I'm just trying to make money so I 
don't die. You know? <laughs> that's that's kind of kind of where it's at. Is it fulfilling? It's like if I would ask my my grandfather if his jobs were fulfilling, he'd just be like, shut up. That's, I had six kids after World War II. Like, I just did whatever I could. But, but that's really, it's a big part of our own sense of identity. Our own sense of self and meaning is, what do you do? That's why a lot of people, when they can't work, maybe they have an injury. Or, or maybe have kids. You take a break from work. The, the sense of self, the sense of identity really goes down. The sense of meaning. Because that has become a replacement for the identity that you get in God. I think this is true of a lot of addictions. I think a lot of addictions are the result of that emptiness that you feel when you feel like you don't have meaning. The world is like a statue to an unknown God. So we must make God known. We must figure out how do we know this God of ours? How do we even get started? What is our adult starting point? How do we start to ask the question, who is Jesus? Well, uh, Charles Wesley gave us a really great tool. Mine's a little bit abbreviated version of his, but uh, it was known as the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. Very cool. So, yeah, three years of seminary. There it is. The Wesleyan Quadrilateral. There you go. 30 seconds. So, <laughs> so uh, he said that, that you understand God through four ways. I, I, he would also say that Scripture is most important. I would say Scripture is the way. And these three are supporting partners in the way that you understand God. Scripture is the authority. Why? Because the ultimate view of God that the world has ever seen is Jesus Christ. That makes sense? He was, God was skin on, in the flesh, in human history. When you looked upon Jesus, you were looking upon God himself. So he's the ultimate revelation. What's God like? I don't know. What's Jesus like? That'll tell you what God is like. Now, since obviously he's not walking the earth right now, we don't have that luxury, but we have scripture that is a witness to him walking around on earth. That's essentially why the Bible matters most. Because it is the authoritative witness of what God did in history. But there are other ways that we learn, that we develop a framework of God, tradition. Let's define tradition. Tradition is that which is handed down generationally from one to the next That's what we mean when we say tradition. That's certainly a way. Reason. You see Paul on the Areopagus, he's reasoning. He's using reason as an on-ramp. And I would say reason was the number one way that people got to God in our modern 20th century um, world. In what we call modernity. Reason is the number one way. So if you gave a reasonable argument for God... That would bring people to faith. It would bring people to care about scripture through reason. I believe that's no longer true. I believe in this postmodern world, the number one on-ramp is experience. Personal experience is the number one way that people engage with God and then they care about the Bible and everything else. That's why our worship here, we try to make it experiential. We want you to have an experience of God, not just information about God. We're sort of doing what we do in the children's Sunday school to you. Because it works. So what about experience? 
experience for our culture. If you experience something, then you start to care about it. I'll give you an example. When I was about seven or eight, my family used to go to Disneyland all the time, and I really wanted to, uh, nothing to do with Space Mountain. Space Mountain. So at, at the time, I had never been on a roller coaster, and I'd been to Disneyland a few times, and I would look at Space Mountain. I just, I didn't want to go to that section of the park. I didn't want anything to do with it. And I had friends, they'd invite me for like birthday parties and stuff. We only live like 45 minutes away. So we'd go often. They'd be like, yeah, you want to go to Space Mountain? No. Nope, don't want anything to do with it. I hate Space Mountain. You hate it? Have you ever been on it? No. I want nothing to do with that thing. Oh yeah, roller coaster in the dark. Yeah, no thank you. No, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I was pretty adamant that I didn't want anything to do with it. And I was sure that I would live a perfectly happy life without going on Space Mountain. And then one day, I find myself in line to get on Space Mountain. Now listen, when you're in a line for two hours, you're in. There's, <laughs> you're not backing out. I don't care what's at the end of this thing. I'm riding it. So, and I'm like so nervous getting on this ride. So I get on the ride. Go through the experience, mostly with my eyes closed. At the end of the ride, I jump up, and what do I say? Let's do it again! <laughs> in fact, I got really into Space Mountain. I kept doing it over and over. I was the champion of Space Mountain. When I go to Disneyland with my friends, can we do Space Mountain? When do we go on Space Mountain? I used to check books out of the library at school about Disneyland to look about Space Mountain. I think this is the truth with us in faith in today's culture. Scripture is the way that you really understand what God is about. But that's usually not the starting point. Usually the starting point is experience. If you have an experience of God, it makes you care about why does the Bible matter? Why does the scripture matter? Why does all these other things matter in my life? Uh, this last week, my family and I went to the Museum of the Bible in uh, D.C. And I was careful. I'm not showing you too much. This is one part of it. I, I don't want to ruin it for those who go. But let me tell you, this museum is legit. It's awesome. It was my kids' favorite museum of the whole trip. I have a seventh grader, a third grader, and a kindergarten, kindergartner. We spent six hours there. They did not want to leave. It was that good. One of the things that they do is they take you through an experience of the Bible. It's multimedia. It's really, really experiential. And they're smart. They know that if they do that, it's going to make you want to see the regular museum stuff. Sure enough, my kids, we did the experience. They came out of there and they went to every other part of, of the thing, you know, where it's just like a regular museum. It's got kind of like an artifact and some information. They were so into it about the history of the development of the Bible. Rooms and rooms of like all through like the Middle Ages and everything. They were into it. They were like, oh, did you know that Martin Luther made this? I'm like, thank you. Yes, I did. <laughs> they were so into it. The experience came first. And it made them care about the information. Maybe for a lot of us in our adult lives, we simply just haven't had enough of an experience to care about the information. 
I think this may be a possible starting point. Maybe our childhood faith wasn't strong enough, but our adult faith can be. That's what this series is about. Maybe we just need a new starting point or a restarting point. 